Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Kelsey Bowler. So Virginia's at a conference this week, but Kelsey, it's always such a treat to have you in studio with me. And it's so fitting because do you know what this week is? A little birdie told me it is the three-year anniversary of Problematic Women. I know, isn't that crazy? It's crazy to think about sitting in the studio the day we started where we were politically and in our personal lives. Yeah, I mean, we were like, babe, I mean. You're a homeowner now. Yeah. Uh, and directing a whole video team here. I mean. <laughs> and you have 1.5 children. Yeah. I, th- I don't even think you were married when we started I, this. I was not. I think I was wedding planning because I look back at pictures from when we began and I was really skinny. And it's because <laughs> you are so I wasn't skinny. too far away from my <laughs> wedding. And that is the best and most motivating time to lose weight it all you know goes away after that or come i should say comes back (laughs) well the show just means so much to all of us here it's so great to not only get to build relationships with women like you and virginia but to get to do it on air and really kind of stand up for what we believe in right and take this problematic women brand and, and make something of it and make women know that it's okay to be problematic not only is it okay But it's something to embrace and be proud of. Uh, The left still to this day calls us problematic. I actually have a very fitting segment to get into (laughs) later. But, you know, I I, I think we just need to flip the script and embrace it. That's what we've done on this show. And that's what our listeners have done. And we are so grateful for every one of them. So grateful. Well, let's get to it on today's show. We discuss women's employment trends, our moms choosing to stay home for good, And then we hear the personal testimony of Laura Perry, a woman who struggled with her gender identity, even underwent gender transition surgery, and after all that, realized that she still didn't feel whole. It's incredible to hear her story of detransitioning and finally finding peace through her faith. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week here on Problematic Woman, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women— those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, Lauren, let's get to it. All right, welcome back. Well, this segment is a little different than what we normally do earlier this week. I was working on another project. I had the pleasure of interviewing a woman named Laura Perry. She told her story in just such a engaging and, I mean, it it just has highs and lows. And as soon as we finished, I said, I don't care what it was for. I want to play it today here on Problematic Women. So it's just Laura just telling her story. It's a little longer than, you know, we would normally run audio, but I I just know that you're going to love it. So listen in. Hi, my name is Laura Perry, and I am a former transgender, and I have been radically set free by Jesus Christ, and I want you to know the same Jesus that has set me free. So I grew up in a Christian home, and I heard about Jesus all the time. We were at church every time the door was open, and I was at Christian school. I was in Bible drill. We were on all the little programs, and I was baptized at eight years old. I I thought I knew the Lord. Well, actually, I thought... I was a Christian, and I was told I was a Christian, and I thought that's 
all that being a Christian was, you know, doing the right things, saying the right things, reading your Bible, but I did not know the Lord at all. And uh, I don't think anybody ever realized that. And, you know, I, I had a really difficult relationship with my mom, but I, you know, as the Lord has taught me over the years, I've recognized that this wasn't my mom's fault. So in sharing this, I'm always a little bit like, because I think parents sometimes have enough guilt and they blame themselves. And, and I was responsible for my own decisions. But um, in a lot of the, the anger and the resentment towards her, I had built up a lot of bitterness over the years. And just recently, I was reading in the Word, and this jumped out at me. The Lord showed me in Hebrews 12, 15 through 16, it says, Looking diligently, lest any man uh, fell short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person such as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. And I, I've seen that so much in my own life as well as in so many others where it's like um, because of the bitterness, the resentment, and it, it begins to make us angry towards other people and then eventually anger towards God. And we're willing to, you know, I was willing to throw everything out the window that I had known about God, everything I'd been taught, every thing I was promised for eternity because of what I wanted in the flesh because I was so full of resentment and bitterness um, towards my mom and towards other people but it started with this early lie that my mom didn't love me as much as my brother and I think it's something that um, you know as I had this lens on that this belief that I already had because of various circumstances it was like all of a sudden everything that happened in life got put through that filter so, you know, some little thing would happen and it would be like, see, she doesn't love you. And so that just got reinforced more and more over the years. So when I was real little, you know, five, six years old, early school days, I was really acting a lot more like a boy. I spent a lot of time with my brother anyway and a lot of time with my dad. So I was just around men a lot. And then I started acting more like a boy and I was only interested in like soccer and things like that at recess. So I played with the boys and then I just didn't know how to relate to the girls. And I used to, for years, I thought the girls rejected me, but I look back and I think it was really my own awkwardness, my own not knowing how to relate to girls, not knowing how to fit in with girls. And so, but I just assumed that they didn't want me around, that they had rejected me. And so... I just started acting more and more like a boy. It, it sort of reinforced this whole thing, and it just got into more and more of a vicious cycle. And then when I was eight years old, I was molested by a boy that was uh, a year older than me. So he was nine. And it really changed me, and I, I became very sexual after that. Uh, you know, I had a lot of guilt and a lot of shame because I knew it was wrong, but at the same time, it had awakened this desire um, this wasn't this big, scary, older man. You know, this was my friend's brother, so it was confusing. And I, I just lived in constant shame, and I lived in this secret sin that nobody knew about, and it just began to um, really destroy my life. In fact, uh, I started having all kinds of health problems, and I didn't realize until recently. <laughs> you know, the Bible talks about how secret sin will um, leads to rottenness of our bones. It, there's several scriptures in the Word that talk about unforgiveness and, um, and bitterness and um, sin that leads to uh, affecting our body. And so I was having all these crazy health problems that nobody could figure out. And I didn't realize it was my own sin that was leading to that.
But then when I was around 14, I had struggled with all this for years, and I had been living in all this secret sexual sin. I was acting out with other friends, um, and but I just hated being a girl. And I was so, I was intensely jealous of boys. And I, so I had really rejected my female body, but I didn't know there was anything I could do about it because I'd never even heard the word transgender. I, I think we forget sometimes how much society has changed even since then. And uh, so I didn't ever think of actually transitioning to a boy at that time. If, if I'd heard about transgenderism, I would have been screaming at, you know, eight, nine, ten years old that I was a boy and I had to transition. But as it was, I was trying to, to live the life in the body that I was in. And uh, but I went to a doctor when I was 14. I was having all kinds of stomach problems. And I was having these massive stomach pains that were just completely unbearable. And I was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome. And so I had cysts all over my ovaries that were um, bursting. And I would, sometimes I would just fall out of my chair writhing on the floor. I was just in such agony. And this was going on almost every day. And so, you know, I, I knew that God had made me female. I tried very hard, actually, at one point to um, pretend like God didn't exist. I tried to be an atheist. But I knew, I, no matter, I'd been taught so much. There was such a solid foundation. I had all this head knowledge. I knew the Bible was true. You know, and I couldn't escape that fact. But I was angry. I started being angry with God because I thought, okay, if, if God did this on purpose, if God made me a girl, but I have, I've had all these problems, I'm not loved as a girl, and the girls reject me, and then on top of that, my female system doesn't work. They were telling me I'd likely never get pregnant, and it's causing me nothing but pain. If God did all this on purpose, then God is a jerk. And I just really began to resent God. And so when I was 16, I told God that I would never serve him again and just walked away from the faith and wanted nothing to do with God at all and wanted nothing to do with Christians. I wanted to be the opposite of a Christian, whatever that was. And so I started, I got, I actually abandoned my friends and sought out new friends that were into partying and drinking and things like that. Um, really began running away from the faith with all my heart. I it, it's a miracle, honestly, that I didn't end up in a satanic cult. I had a boyfriend in high school that was into um, some Satan. Uh, I had a boyfriend in high school that was into some satanic stuff. And um, how we never ended up in a cult or something like that, I don't know, uh, by the grace of God. But, you know, we were just into some really dark places. And just deep in sexual sin, deep in partying and pornography and all kinds of things. And it was just, my life was getting more and more miserable. But I kept thinking that, you know, I don't want Christianity. You know, on, on top of the, the hard part with my mom, you know, what I saw a lot of Christianity growing up, I grew up in a very legalistic church. So all I knew of God really were, were his rules. And God was this harsh taskmaster. And you could either obey his rules and go to heaven, or you could disobey his rules and go to hell. And that's really my only understanding and so um, when I was angry with God and didn't want to follow his rules, it was, there was always this fear of hell, but it wasn't really enough to motivate me to want to serve God. It was like um, I was just always um, like tried not to think about it. So throughout college, I had gotten deeper and deeper into sexual sin and into pornography, and it was just feeding this fantasy, and I started playing, playing, um, and I started playing virtual sex games. And so I was fantasizing more and more about being a man and envisioning myself as being the, the man in the relationship instead of the woman. And my, the relationships I did have were just getting worse and worse. 
um, I finally joined an adult hookup site and I was just meeting random men all over the state. I was trying so hard to find love, but I was just going about it in all the wrong ways. And I was just looking in all the wrong places and I was just treating, I was just being treated more and more like trash. I finally was so desperate because I, I, I kept thinking that the reason that this never works, the reason that I'm never happy is because I was supposed to be the man. And if I was the man, then this would all be this would all work well. Then I would have a good relationship. And I still hadn't heard the word transgender. I was 25 and I was, I had had a romantic or what I had had what was supposed to be a romantic weekend with a boyfriend that just went horribly bad. And I thought I was supposed to be the man and I would, you know, treat a girl like this. And I began fantasizing about how I would treat a girl. And so I, I literally began looking up in Google, girl becoming a boy, just to see if anybody felt like I did, if, if that was even a thing. And I couldn't believe the amount of results that popped up. And there were thousands of results and people that had actually transitioned. And it, it just, all of a sudden, it was like, it was everything I'd ever wanted to hear. And so I, I looked up, um, you know, if there were was anybody in Tulsa where I was, was living, and there was a support group there. And I was like, wow, you know, they're this is great. And so I went the first week it was available and I went and I was there for maybe five minutes and they had me just sharing a little bit about who I was. And they were like, oh, you are definitely transgender. And it was like, I knew it. <laughs> like everything, the devil was giving me everything I wanted to hear. And so, you know, I mean, they, they didn't even know anything about my childhood or anything. Like all I had told, you know, I don't remember what all I told him. But all they know is what I'm telling them. They're not diving any into anything deeper to see why I might be feeling that way. You know, nobody asked me why I didn't like being a girl. It's like all you have to say is how much you felt like a boy. And it's like, oh, you're definitely transgender. Um, and I was worried that I would never look like a guy. And they said, oh, don't worry about it. After a year or so of taking hormones, no one will ever know you were a girl. And that's what I'd wanted to hear all my life, you know. So I just bought it completely, and I was like, yes, this is, this is what I've been waiting for. And so I started down that journey, and I had to go through um, at least a, a minimum of three therapy sessions that I didn't want. I didn't have any interest in counseling. I was not interested in anyone telling me that this wasn't who I was because I was absolutely convinced at that point that I was um, born a male in a girl's body and that the body was the problem. I didn't see any need for counseling, but it was a requirement. And so I went to this counselor and during the third session, she put down her notebook and looked right in my eyes and she said, wow, you really have issues with your mom. And I was stunned. I was like, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> How do we get from talking about me being a man to talking about my mother? And I really just hadn't been paying attention to the questions and where the conversation was going. I was just trying to fulfill this requirement. And, um, but she had stumbled on this deep um, she had stumbled on this deep bitterness and resentment toward my mother. And uh, so I finally, I blew up at her. I said, I'm not here to talk about my mom. And she said, so you're just here for this diagnosis. I said, yes, that's all I'm here for. And she said, okay. And she just gave me what I wanted, diagnosed me with gender identity disorder. And I took this letter to a doctor saying I'd been diagnosed with this. And um, he said, okay, this is what you want. I said, yes, this is what I want. And so he started me on hormones and they gave me the first injection there. But after that, I um, was able to take the medicine home and do it myself. And, 
you know, they, they just sort of send you on your merry way. And I had to check in with the doctor once in a while, but really only for um, medical evaluation, not really psychological evaluation. But I thought this was going to be the greatest thing ever. I thought it was the answer to all my problems. Um, and so I started, you know, and I had all these dreams and fantasies. They told me about how testosterone was going to make my, my body so much uh, more uh, ripped and in shape and all this, you know. But I found out that that works on some body types, but not all. Actually, a lot of girls will actually gain weight. And so I really struggled with my weight. Um, and I was getting stronger, but I still didn't have the body that I wanted. And I kept thinking, throughout the first year as I was on the hormones and my voice began to get lower and I started growing facial hair. And, you know, it seemed so real at first. And it was like, it just kept feeding that fantasy. You know, and then as people started to call me male or, you know, use male pronouns or they would um, call me my, my name Jake. And it would reaffirm all that. And I was like, yes, this is real. And I knew that I was living a lie at that point. Like, I knew it was fake. But it was like, one day it's going to be real. And so all the affirmation just kept feeding that and feeding that. And I had a job where they were letting me transition. And so everybody was calling me Jake. And I was using the men's restrooms. And uh, about a year or so later, I was frustrated with dealing with the, the breasts that I had. And I was binding them down. But I was still aware of it all the time. So I thought, well, this is the problem. And so in 2009, I had a double mastectomy and had the breast removed and had a, a plastic surgery to where it looked more like a male chest. And I remember, you know, just being on cloud nine. I thought this was the greatest thing that had ever happened to me. And this was the reason it wasn't real before. But now it's going to be real. And this made me legally male as well. So now I didn't have the embarrassment of showing my license or something and being, you know, outed. Um, and now I could apply for a new job where I was only known as male. But I, I had gone back to um, work a few weeks later to my boss that she was a lesbian at the time. Um, she had helped me plan the trip. She was very excited for me. She thought this was all wonderful. And she got in my face one day and she said, look, I don't know what's happened to you or I don't know what's going on with you, but you're moping around here. You're depressed. You're not working as hard. You're unmotivated. I don't know what's wrong, but I want the old Jake back. And I was stunned. I was like, what do you mean? I'm the happiest I've ever been in my life. And uh, I said, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm recovering. I'm still recovering, but I'm fine. But I went home that night and I thought, what is she seeing in me that I'm not seeing in myself? Because it drove me nuts. I couldn't get out of my head. And I finally had to admit that I was depressed because my surgery hadn't made me a man. And I realized that. And I remember feeling so stupid. I thought, even women have mastectomies. This hasn't made me a man. And I thought, well, you know, maybe another year or two of hormones. Once it sort of works all the way through the body, once it sort of changes everything, then it will be real. But a couple of years later, it still wasn't real. And I thought, oh, it's because I have all these female organs. Once I get rid of all the female organs, then it will be real. And so I got rid of all the female organs um, through a hysterectomy. And, you know, then it, it still wasn't real, though. And I, I realized that... You know, a little bit of doubt was starting to, to creep in. And it was like, is this ever going to be real? You know, everybody around me is affirming me. Everybody around me. My family never did. Well, I had some family members that affirmed me and some that didn't. My parents never did. They wouldn't call me Jake. They wouldn't use the male pronouns. And I would get mad. But, you know, I knew they loved me. But I would tell them how hateful they were being. But I was always trying to manipulate them into doing what I wanted. Um... But I was just constantly reminded that I was living a lie. And, I mean, 
people just don't realize the mental hell this becomes when I was reminded constantly that this isn't real, but everyone else is telling you it is, and everyone else believes it, and they're just be- I, I just began to live in sort of this internal hell, and I kept thinking that it's going to be real one day, it has to be, like I've invested so much at this point, I can't go back, and I wanted it to be real. Um, there was no way that I wanted to go back to being female, because there was so much pain in being a girl, and so I... Um, I thought, well, once I have the final surgery, once I have the male genitalia, then it will all be real. I'll put all this behind me, and I can forget that I was ever Laura. Because I I wasn't even openly transgender. I really wanted as few people as possible to know the truth. Um, I wanted to absolutely erase the existence of Laura. And so I, um, I started looking into the final surgeries, and when I did, I was devastated as I started realizing how fake they were too, that it was never going to be real. Um, and I realized how artificial it was and just, I mean, plus the horrible side effects and complications and risks. And on top of that at the time, I don't know what the current statistics show, but um, 40 to 60% would likely lose all sexual sensation. Um, and so I, I was just devastated when I realized that I could possibly you know, not be able to ever experience uh, sexual pleasure again. And on top of that, you know, to, to have it be completely fake. And I thought, this is not ever going to be real. And I was, I was spending hundreds, maybe, I don't know how much, but at least hundreds of dollars on um, fake genitalia that I was using in the meantime. I was trying so hard to make all this real. And I just realized at some point that it was never going to be, no matter what I did, I was never going to be a man. But I, I didn't want to be a woman either, and I thought, well, this is the best life's ever going to get. I'm just going to live life somewhere in between. I felt like a freak caught in between men and women. And back then, nobody was talking about like non-binary or anything like that. And so I just thought, um, at least everyone else believes it. But then it, it became worse and worse over the years. My mental health was declining. And I didn't know then that part of that, I think, is just from the the hormones. There have been, I don't know if there are official studies, but just in people I've talked to, um, many transgenders have talked about their mental health declining as they've used these cross-sex hormones. Um, But I know it also had a a cognitive um, effect on my brain. I started having more and more trouble at work. I had trouble thinking. I had trouble processing thoughts. Sometimes I had trouble with memory. And um, I was having other health problems. Uh, they said I was in serious danger of a stroke. I had to start going to a blood bank to have therapeutic blood withdrawals because my blood was so thick. Um, and it was just like life was spiraling out of control, and I kept wanting this to be real. Um, and it just never was. And I remember going to, you know, I, I couldn't even have a normal conversation with, with people without wondering if they knew the truth. I was talking to all, you know, people I knew at work, and I kept wondering, did they know? And especially with... You know, I'd meet a stranger, and all I could think was, do they believe me? Do they know that I'm uh, really a girl? Do they know, or do they think I'm a male? But I, and I remember I had to reinvent my life all the time. Like, I'd be telling a story about childhood, and it would be like, oh, wait a minute. I couldn't have been in Girl Scouts. I had to have been in Boy Scouts. You know, I couldn't have played softball. It had to have been baseball, Um, you know. I remember one time I I found out that an ex-boyfriend of mine 
um, was marrying this girl, and I, I went, and it was a horrible, volatile relationship, and I had gone back to my boss, and I was telling her about all this, and I said, I'm just telling her everything I just found out, and she looks at me, because I'm talking about an ex-boyfriend, here I am supposedly a straight man that's married to a, a woman, um, and she said, Jake, do you swing both ways? And I was like, what? You know, and it caught me so off guard. And I remember the alarm bells going off and realizing that I'd been caught in this huge lie. And, like, I've either got to tell her that I've had a relationship with a man, and here I am, you know, supposedly a straight man, or I've got to tell her that I'm actually transgender and I used to be a girl. And I remember being so frustrated and trying to cover the lie, and I ended up telling her that I, I meant that I was talking about my brother, you know, um, so... But it was just, it was horribly frustrating. And, um, anyway, it was just, it was devastating. And I thought, this is hopeless. And I didn't really want to commit suicide, um, but I didn't really want to live either. You know, I was just going through the motions, trying to find happiness. And I kept trying to fill my life with other things. I, I eventually, I became like a, a rabid hockey fan. You know, and I was just like all my uh, my identity started becoming in this super fan and, you know, knowing all the stats and everything. Because I had to have some sort of other identity because I just felt so lost. And I felt like my whole life was a lie. Um, you know, but eventually God had been pursuing me over the years just very, very slowly. It actually started with talk radio of all things, being bored at a job and, and listening to talk radio. And But just over the years, God had just um, been intervening in little ways. It was like this little breadcrumb trail he'd been laying out for me. Um, he'd given me dreams. He spoke to me all the time in dreams. Um, or I had an encounter with God in my car one time where He just, the presence of God filled my car because I'd flipped on the Christian radio station. Um, and there were just these little encounters over the years. And But I still didn't. I still didn't really want God. I was keeping him at bay. I think I was full of so much shame and guilt. But my mom asked me one time to make a website for her Bible study. And I agreed really just because I needed the money. Um, but as I started working on the website, I thought, you know, I'm going to summarize the lessons for the, the website. This would be great. And as I did, I had to read the lessons. So as I started reading the lessons, the Word of God just began to penetrate my heart. And it really wasn't even a specific verse at first. It really was God was showing me who he was. He started revealing his character and his heart and how he was faithful and trustworthy. And I really began to be blown away by the God that I was reading about. And it wasn't the God I'd heard about growing up. And I didn't know how I'd missed it. I had read so much of the Bible growing up, but all I ever heard was God's rules. But now I was hearing that God wanted a relationship, that God loved people, that God was faithful, that he was trustworthy. And so I, I just got curious, and I started calling my mom and asking her questions. And eventually, um, we talked for several months, and I finally said, Mom, what's happened to me? Six months ago, I was 180 degrees from where I am now. I said, all I want is to hear the word of God. And that was never like me in my entire life. And she said, well, I've been praying that God would draw you back like a magnet. I said, wow, you know, that's what God has done. I, it was, I was so stunned that God had answered her prayer because I had no other explanation for it. There was no reason that I should have wanted God. I had never wanted that in my life. 
all of a sudden that's all I wanted. And I also noticed how much she had changed. I said, Mom, what's happened to you? Because you're not the mother I grew up with. And she said, um, and she told me how she had really surrendered her life to the Holy Spirit to let him work in her. She'd been a Christian all her life, but she was always on this performance treadmill for God, trying so hard in her own flesh to please God. And yet now she had really surrendered herself to the Holy Spirit to let him work in her and through her. And he was allowing her to change. He was allowing her, sorry. And she was allowing him to change her. And so I wondered what she had. And so I gave my life to the Lord. And I really did get radically saved at that time. And I had this incredible encounter with the Lord where he proved he wasn't done with me yet. But I, I thought I was going to be a man of God. You know, my life, it was this weird dichotomy of, I was so transformed. Honestly, I knew it was like the verse in 2 Corinthians five seventeen: If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I had repented of every sin in my life. I'd gone through this whole list of every sin I could ever think of. It was really cleaning house, and I was trying so hard to live for the Lord, except in this one area. And I was convicted about it, but I didn't think there was anything I could do about it. And I was like, I'm just going to pretend like that never happened. I've repented of it. You know, I said I was sorry, but I've made all these permanent changes, so now I'm just going to be a man of God. But over the next year and a half, the Lord began to pursue me, and he began to convict me of this life that I was living. And it's funny because people will try to twist this verse or that verse and say, oh, it really says this, and this was the original context. But when the Holy Spirit got a hold of me, all of a sudden the entire Bible was telling me I couldn't be transgender. And it was like I was convicted by so many verses, and I would hear over and over and over how this was not the way God made me. And God is the one who determines who we are. It is he who gives us identity. Um, and he told me, even though uh, there were just random verses, like one time he said there was a verse that talks about how if you put new wine into old bottles, the bottles will burst and then the wine will spill out. And he said, I, I cannot put new wine into your old bottle, like into this old flesh. And I knew that I had to die to this flesh, but I didn't know what to do about it. And one night I, I was so desperate. I, I threw myself on the floor before him and I said, Lord, I want to hear well done, good and faithful servant. I don't want to miss anything you have for me. What do you want from me? And he asked me a question. He said, if you stood before me tonight, what name would I call? I said, oh, God, that is not fair. I, I told you I'm sorry. I've repented of this. I, but I've made all these permanent changes. I'm legally male. I've had all these surgeries. There's nothing I can do about it now. And he reminded me of John chapter 1 where it says, Jesus Christ himself is the creator. He said, you can't claim to love me and yet reject my creation. And there was a moment where I thought I was being condemned. But in the most loving voice I've ever heard in all my life, he whispered to me. And he said, let me tell you who you are. And I realized then that God was telling me that no matter what I'd done to myself, no matter who I called myself, no matter what I'd done to my body, I was never going to be anything or anybody other than what he had created. Because he'd created me with, a, with an identity, with a specific plan and a purpose before the foundation of the world. We are known before he knit us together in our mother's womb, before even one of our members existed, he knew us. And so I began to realize that I was who God created me to be. But I still didn't know how to fix it. And so for the next couple of months, I really began to wrestle with it. And he began to use more and more verses to convict me. And I began to see how the LGBT community was really persecuting Christians. 
And I had this vision one day of these people walking along a white picket fence, which didn't make sense to me because I thought, well, why wouldn't they be walking, you know, on something easier to walk on? I, this is my first vision from the Lord. And, I, and God finally said later, um, that was the point. It wasn't supposed to be easy to walk on. But he told me that this issue um, of the like gay Christianity or LGBT Christianity, he said, this issue is going to split the church. And, you know, I, he was like I had I saw him pushing people off one side or the other and he said choose you this day whom you will serve and I was like you're either going to serve this agenda or you're going to serve me and I was desperate and I said oh lord I choose you and I told my partner that night I said I don't want to be transgender anymore and he said well what does that mean for us I said I don't know I don't even I didn't even know what it meant for me I didn't know what that was going to look like but I still didn't know how to fix it, and I just begged God, and I kept, I was so miserable, and I was so guilty every time I went in the men's bathroom, or, you know, just things like that, I was feeling so guilty, and I finally started begging God to take my life, because I saw no way out, and literally for a couple of months, I just begged and begged God to take my life, and I finally pictured myself in this deep, dark pit that I couldn't get out of, and I could see the light at the top, but I had no way out. And the Lord reminded me in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 26, that says, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his own soul? Or what shall he give in exchange for his soul? And I had a clear vision of Jesus Christ getting down on one knee. He reached his hand down into this pit that I was in, and he said, Do you trust me? And I knew he was asking me literally to walk away from everything. He didn't tell me how he was going to fix it, how what the what my life was going to look like over the next few years. I, I didn't know any of that. All I knew was that God was saying, you can't live this way anymore, and you've got to make a decision. And it, I was either going to trust him, or I was not, and I was going to die. You know, And I knew that um, there were going to be eternal consequences. I'm like, I don't know. Like, God, I know that you've saved me. But I know that the word says that those who um, live in unrepentant sexual, sexual sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so um, I said, okay, Lord. And I, I literally walked away from it all. I had no desire at that time to be female. I thought I was going to be miserable the rest of my life. But I thought, but I have to obey the Lord. And I know that one day it will be worth it. I'd read this verse in 1 Corinthians that says, Eye has not seen, nor ear has heard, nor has even entered into the heart of man the things that God has in store for those that love him. And I thought, at least this will all be okay in heaven. I knew I'd get a new body. I knew I'd no longer struggle with this. And that was really my attitude when I came home. I thought, I'm just going to obey the Lord. But I didn't know then the radical healing and transformation that God had in store for me as he began to peel away the layers of the onion. As I began to forgive my mother, as I began to reconcile with her, and God put me in her Bible study, and I had um, these women had been praying for me for years, and as they loved on me, and they not only um, encouraged me and prayed for me, they'd give me cards. They raised almost $1,600 to buy me a new wardrobe. These women poured their love out on me. And I realized that they accepted me as one of the women. I mean, I'd been out of the lifestyle like three days and they're embracing me as just one of the women. And I was so stunned by it all. And I realized then that I was one of them and I'd just been buried under all this pain and the, the transgender lie just sort of broke off of me. 
and I still didn't like being a woman. There was still a lot of pain there and a lot I had to work through, but I knew I was going to be okay, and I just started embracing it with all my heart, and I thought, I don't care how much of a fool I look like, because I still looked really masculine. I still had a lower voice at the time, and I used to go up to people randomly on the, the street, and I would start engaging in conversation, trying to tell them about Jesus, and I would say, the reason I look so weird is because I used to be transgender, and but Jesus set me free, and so I just turned all this awkwardness and um, everything into a testimony for Christ. And he just began to give me more radical healing. And the more that I embraced my femininity, the more I began to get free. And so all of a sudden, I remember telling somebody that one day, the reason I look so weird is because, you know, and his eyes just went like, like, you don't look weird. <laughs> and I realized that I didn't look like a man anymore. And so God is, he really did heal me from the inside out. But as, I, but as he healed me on the inside, he began to transform the outside. And it's just been an incredible miracle as I've seen God over the last, it's been almost exactly five years. And I just am so stunned and so blown away at the work the Lord has done in me and the transformation and healing that he has brought. And it's been so worth every moment of pain. There were some really, really hard days. But the more that I abandoned self and just lived for Christ, the more that that became my identity and that became all I wanted and everything else just faded away. There's an old hymn that says, The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And that was what I found. is like the more that I pursued Christ, the more that everything else just fell away. Yeah, for any parents out there who have children that are dealing with this or maybe they're hearing things at school, uh, just recognize, first of all, that this is... Um, just huge in the culture right now. It is something the enemy is pushing and trying to convince our children of. So just recognize that a lot of this may just be stuff they're hearing. There's a lot of confusion. So so don't panic just because your child says something. Just be willing to have a conversation with them and say um, and ask, you know, where they heard that. Um, you know, do they have a friend that's struggling with that maybe? Or uh, there are some schools where, where they're literally being asked to pick their gender. And so the kids are picking this like a favorite color. Um, so, so in a lot of cases, there may just be some genuine confusion and a really good biblical conversation and just talking to them about how God made them. Um, you know, um, even, even comparing them and say, telling them how much they're like their, their dad if it's a boy or how much they're like the mom if they're a girl. Um, I, I, I think my, my mom didn't understand the confusion she introduced as a child because I was already struggling like this but she always told me how much I was like my dad I was constantly told how much I was like my dad I was told I looked like my dad that I was like him in personality we were two peas in a pod and that introduced a lot of confusion that added to some of the bitterness and the things that I already had I was already feeling rejected by women um, so there can be some um, confusion and distortion just in things we hear we don't realize sometimes the the things kids hear um, so just ask a lot of questions. Um, but if there have been wounds, most people that really struggle with this, that are honestly um, really confused about gender, most of the time there's been some kind of either emotional or, se or sexual trauma. Um, in, in the past, it was overwhelmingly um, sexual trauma, but that's not always the case now. A lot of it, these kids are being introduced to pornography at young ages. So there's been um, a lot of distortion and confusion coming in through pornography, not understanding their own bodies. And, uh, and think about, just for example, a, a little boy 
who sees a grown man in a pornography video and he's going to think, wow, my body looks nothing like that. And he doesn't understand puberty and these other things yet. A lot of these boys feel inferior to other men. Um, a lot of girls may feel like it's unsafe to be a girl. Maybe they've been wounded. Um, they feel very vulnerable. And I think one reason we're seeing so many 14 to 15-year-old girls struggle with this, this is one of the biggest demographics um, of, of people that are going into transgenderism. And I think that's for a couple of reasons. One, you have um, girls that are, um, maybe they've been violated, some of them. They're, even if they haven't been um, molested or raped, there is a huge amount of uh, sexting that's going on. I've heard many stories of girls that are, they'll, they'll send a picture to maybe their boyfriend and then all of a sudden it's all over school. Um, but that's also a really hard time for girls. Just We used to always say that that was the worst age for girls. It's Girls are mean to each other. They're so insecure and girls just hate each other sometimes at that age. They're, the girls will just backstab each other. Um, I remember a girl laughing at me one day because I gave her a Christmas present and she actually... I remember her talking about she actually thought we were friends. I mean, girls are just really cruel at that age sometimes. So, um, and I think with boys too, but I think even more so with girls. Um, but then you're also, it's around the age of puberty. And so all these factors together, and these girls are going on social media. Um, there's a huge number of kids that have said social media influenced them to make this decision. And they're going on these videos and they're seeing, wow, this person did this and it's just transformed their life and now they're so happy. But a lot of times they're talking to people very early on in the process. And um, if you look at some of these videos years later, you can tell these people are struggling. Um, there was one video I saw, in fact, where this girl for years had been making all these videos about how amazing it was and how, um, you know, this is the greatest thing ever. And then she had one video, which she's since taken down from YouTube, but I actually uh, had downloaded it. And she got in her car and just had this real moment in front of a little camera she had on the dash and was just talking about how horrible this was and this was, had not solved all her problems and she was miserable. And, um, you know, she tried to explain it away later saying, oh, I was just having a bad day and all that. But... She was really real and honest. She had had many corrective surgeries. Um, and so we don't hear the other end of the story and how after several years when people start realizing that this isn't real and it hasn't ever fixed the brokenness inside. Um, so kids are not hearing that part of the story, but those videos are out there um, if you look hard enough. So I would also tell parents to educate yourself on, um, listen to a lot of people that have come out of the lifestyle um, listen to people that regret, people that detransition. Uh, there are great videos. Um, you can watch In His Image that I'm a part of. Uh, there's a documentary called Transformed with a Z, so T-R-A-N-Z, Formed. Um, Walt Heyer has a great book called Trans Life Survivors. Um, and there's just there's many other resources out there to find people that regret and try and understand um, why why it never worked. Um, and I think that will give parents the confidence to not embrace and affirm this. Are you looking for an easy and entertaining way to keep up with the news you care about? The Daily Signal and Heritage Foundation YouTube channels offer interviews with policy experts on the most critical issues and debates America is facing today, as well as short explainer videos that break down complex issues and documentaries that dive deep 
into the ways policy actually impacts people. Go ahead and subscribe to both the Daily Signal and Heritage Foundation YouTube channels today. You can search for either on your YouTube app or visit youtube.com slash Heritage Foundation and youtube.com slash Daily Signal. So I'm sure all of you have seen the help wanted signs everywhere. We have a record number of jobs available, but women in particular are slow to return to the economy. Since February 2020, more than 1.6 million women have gone missing from the workforce. Employers are struggling to find workers among government entitlements and additional benefits. Companies are trying to woo women back into the workforce. Uh, with benefits and bonuses. But according to a new study conducted by the conference board, 43% of workers are questioning the need to ever return to the workforce. And this feeling is particularly prominent among moms. President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris have called this situation a, quote, national emergency. And according to U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Ramato, and a lot of con- economists, this is a, quote, problem that needs to be fixed. Problematic. <laughs> <laughs> so our Commerce Secretary told Fortune magazine recently in an interview, quote, you cannot have a strong workforce, a strong economy, and a strong democracy if women aren't included. She added that businesses and policymakers are, quote, underestimating the size and magnitude of the problem. But Lauren, My question here is, with so many jobs available to take, is the drop in the female labor participation rates a problem or is it a reflection of a new choice that women are making? I mean, that's such an interesting thought because as most of us were at home during the whole pandemic and women were home with children more than ever. I mean, it makes total sense that childcare is harder to find now. It's more expensive. Schools are closed that, you know, and maybe even two women just found that they enjoy spending more time with their children. Right. So I I think it's clear early on in the pandemic, it was not a choice for women to leave the workforce. Schools were shut down. In some cases, their jobs were shut down by government mandated closures. And and they could not balance the whole remote learning and being a mom and a functional employee at the same time. And so a lot of moms did take a step back and did make difficult sacrifices when it comes to their jobs and their careers. What I'm really going to be looking at in the next couple of months, especially as schools are supposed to reopen for in-person learning this fall, we'll see if the teachers unions actually let that happen, is whether these numbers return to pre-pandemic levels, uh, whether the same percentage of women who are working prior to COVID-19, you know, is is back and, and decides to actually go out and seek these jobs that are widely available right now. I think on one hand, it's very possible that this is still a reflection of Uh, pandemic effects where summer camps were closed or they had restrictions. I know some moms still are very concerned about COVID-19 and their children, although I would um, gently tell them that (laughs) the studies tell us um, the vast majority of children are are actually at more of a risk of uh, getting severely ill or dying of the flu than Mm -hmm. they are of COVID-19. So, 
And a lot of moms, I think, were just so stretched thin and stressed out during the past year with remote learning. They perhaps just want a couple more weeks to enjoy summer before they return to the workforce and, and find and start a new job. So on one hand, it's very possible that we will see similar mm-hmm. uh, female labor participation rates come this fall. On the other hand, if you look at what happened with the housing market, and if you think about in your own lives how many families you know who relocated, bought houses outside of big cities, and and, and really made uh, fundamental lifestyle changes, such as removing their children out of the public school systems, which were they found out were brainwashing their children with critical race theory, transgender ideology, and the likes. Um, and, and they chose to homeschool instead. You know, I think some of these shifts might be more permanent. And this isn't just amongst the stereotypical white evangelical families. Uh, pre-pandemic, around 3% of black students were homeschooled. Uh, by October, that number had risen to 16%. Wow. That's <laughs> a huge jump, Kelsey. Right. And... And, you know, if if parents actually discovered that they enjoy homeschooling, they enjoy spending more time with their children, that certainly would have long-term effects on the labor market. Um, So I think we all should be watching whether these trends continue into the fall. And if that's the case, we need to push back on economists and Biden and, and Harris who are trying to sound the alarms about, you know, a, a drop in female labor participation rates because if jobs are available and women aren't choosing to take them, that reflects a choice they are making. And ultimately, that's what we want all Americans to have, the freedom to make choices that are best for them individually and for their families. In my opinion, moms who take a step back from the workforce to prioritize their children should be commended for that decision. Yeah, couldn't couldn't agree with you more, Kelsey. And I can't imagine, too, when moms are now in this situation and let's say both sides are equal, I could stay home or I could have my kids go to daycare or whatever and go back to work. But can you imagine you have to make that decision and now you're seeing all the CRT stuff critical race theory on TV. You're seeing the way that this transgender ideology is permeating our schools in a way that, I mean, even Christian schools aren't even safe for this. So yeah, I I can't imagine that decision that moms are going to have to make. And uh, I'm glad that you're bringing this up because you're right. Women, if they want to enter the workforce, they should have every opportunity that a man does. And they should be treated uh, for roles where they're equally qualified and get those jobs. But there's nothing wrong with it should actually be commended just for staying home with children. And, and I would say even if we saw this trend among men, I mean, we want Americans to get back in the workforce after COVID. We can't be on lockdown forever. But I would love to see the trend be too more stay-at-home dads. <laughs> yeah. And the last thing I want to say on this topic is is if this trend conti- continues into the fall, it's going to really <laughs> expose the falsehoods behind gender quotas and the so-called gender pay gap. So companies will continue woo- wooing women back into the workforce with benefits and bonuses that we see many of them are offering now. But it's possible they are soon going to find out there are some things that money can't buy, and that is time spent raising our own children. And if you don't have every mom seeking employment it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to fill these 
um, gender quotas that mm-hmm. we know so many companies and businesses are pursuing. Um, and so I just I think this is um, something that we should be watching and tracking. And I'd love to come back in a couple months to discuss with you when we have more data. Well, Kelsey, you know, it's always an open invitation. <laughs> Well, we are going to take a quick break, but before we do, are you sad that there's not a Problematic Women episode that drops every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday morning? Well, you know, as much as I love to do the podcast every day, we can't, but I do have a really good alternative for you, and that is the Daily Signal podcast. It brings you the top news of the day. Co-hosts Rachel Del Judas and Virginia Allen interview lawmakers, authors, Heritage Foundation experts, and others on the most important policy debates in America today. If you are conservative or just really anyone who wants to be on top of the news, check out the Daily Signal podcast, available every weekday morning. And on Thursdays, you can listen to it right after Problematic Women. Now it is that time, once again, my favorite time of the week, to crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. And the crown goes to... Rosa Maria Paya and the women Cuban activists who are risking their lives for freedom in Cuba. So Rosa has been a very loud voice for Cuban freedom and human rights. She is the daughter of Oswaldo Paya, who was the head of the pro-democracy Christian liberation movement, who courageously fought for freedom and democracy in the face of the Castro regime's brutal human rights abuses. After her father died in a very suspicious car crash that was never investigated, Rosa took up much of his activism work, carrying on his legacy to this day. And I actually found a clip of her speaking on a panel on Wednesday with Governor Ron DeSantis. And I think it just really shows her passion. The united voice of the exile community and the Cuban people that is demanding freedom on, on the streets right now in a very clear message. They are saying, and with the dictatorship. And that's, 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 that's one of the main uh, the main messages that, that we were asking for our elected officials and also from uh, Governor and Lieutenant Governor to pass to uh, Washington, D.C., please support the demand for freedom of the Cuban people. How? First of all, no negotiations with the dictatorship. No one is entitled to say what the Cuban people is already saying in the streets, which is freedom and with the dictatorship. Second, the, the governor already mentioned it. The United States has the capacity to provide Internet access to the Cuban people. That Internet access, access right now could save life in the middle of the repression that is taking place in the island because one of the, the first things that the Cuban regime did was just shut down all the communications and the, and the, and the Internet access. Second, targeting sanctions. They are, they, uh, they are criminals in power that right now are calling for combat are calling for the military to shoot the people in the streets. They are, they are killing young people. Just yesterday, 13-year-old guy died in the streets in, 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 in Las Tunas, in, uh, in Cuba. Fourth, why there are still so many enterprises doing business with a criminal dictatorship that actually repress the Cuban people. And when we are talking about putting consequence for those enterprises, we are not asking for any extraordinary measure. 
we are asking for the Sullivan principles, the same principles that were applied to, to uh, South Africa to end with the apartheid. We are not less than the South African people, and we are demanding the same human rights that you enjoy here in the United States and that Guam people haven't had for many years right now. And in order to, to actually be solidarious with the Cuban people in an effective way, we are not just asking this as uh, unilateral measures from the United States. We are asking the United States to be the leader of these messages and also also be a leader in, in, in our hemisphere to please invite each democracy, all the sister republics of the Cuban people to also take action. And those actions can be taken through the inter-American system. There, is, there, there are provisions in the European Union that allow the European Union to put sanctions against the repressors of the Cuban people right now. We need that leadership also coming from the center of democracy that is the United States, and we are hoping that they have the will to do that right now, but the Cuban people right now in the streets is demanded that change and that freedom. Lauren, we are praying for all of those brave freedom fighters in Cuba today, tomorrow, and every day for the strength and, and, and the will for change. I mean, Kelsey, I will tell you, it makes me angry when I think back to the 4th of July and every other celebrity was talking about, I'm not proud of this country, you know, why, why are we celebrating? Disrespecting the flag. Yeah. And now you see these people who could be shot for just walking on the street. Some of them have been yeah. in, for protesting. Yeah. And guess what? Some of them are carrying the American flag. Yeah. It is such a shame that under a communist regime, people are going out in the streets fighting for freedom, using the American flag as a symbol of that. And so often here at home, we are seeing Americans disrespect it. Yeah. And so, Kelsey, you're right. We should be praying for the Cuban people. And it's just it's it's heartbreaking, but it's also so inspiring to see these people stand up for just basic human rights. Absolutely. So with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world. And we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a great week. And thank you for tuning in to this special three-year anniversary of Problematic Women. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.